So welcome everyone to this uh, HSC Enrichment Day at Macquarie University. Um, I'm hoping that you are looking forward to enjoying um, many hours of uh, delving into the realms of English literature. My name is Jeff Payne, and I am a lecturer here in the department of McCall at Macquarie University. And um, I have the privilege of being our department's um, specialist on poetry of the Romantic era, as well as literary culture of the 18th and 19th century in Britain. Um, I'm also the convener of our first year units. So I hope that many to see many of you um, in the coming years, um, especially if you can't choose to come and study with us at Macquarie. Um, online with us today is Zali Stamopoulos, um, and she is uh, going to be uh, acting as a technical assistant. If there are any issues that you have, please um, direct those questions to her using the chat function on um, the island uh, on the Zoom site. Um, and also, um, feel free to post any questions that you have for me there. And I'm hoping that I'll have time to get to questions at the end of my presentation. But I want to begin today by working through some ideas about conversations, this idea that we are engaging with the relationship between two different kinds of texts. We might begin with a relatively simple idea of the relationship between these texts. Just over 200 years ago, a young English poet by the name of John Keats produced a series of brilliant poems that were largely ignored or derided by his contemporaries, but that came over time to be considered as masterpieces of the language. In the early 2000s, nearly 20 years ago, a well-established Altair filmmaker, Jane Campion, encountered Keats's work and fell in love with it, deciding to make a film that makes use of these poems as well as the life of the poet himself. The view of the relation between these texts is easy and comforting. The film Bright Star is an adaptation of the earlier originary text by Keats, the brilliant sonnet that gives the film its name, the breathtakingly beautiful Ode to a Nightingale, which haunts the film's closing credits, and a range of other poetic hits or classics, La Belle Dame Summer Sea, When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be, and The Eve of St Agnes, to name a few. This view, however, does not, much does not present much of a conversation per se. And there are, of course, other elements that we might bring in. For example, we might note the conversation between the texts and the producers of their works. John Keats, on the one hand, and uh, who produced the poems, and Jane Campion, who produced the film. These texts, after all, are somehow reflective of the individuals who produce them, products of their minds and expressive of the ways that they see the world. There is perhaps a sense of sympathy, of worldview and value that the authors of the text share, a resonating sense of empathetic engagement, especially on the part of the later adaptation, which takes up the texts and modes of the earlier artefact in order to create its own aesthetic product. Conversation, however, is not all one way either. In presenting the poems within the film, certain interpretive models frames uh, the reception that we that and helps to um, frame certain kinds of reception over 
how the historically earlier texts signify in the wider world. As I'm going to discuss in detail later on in the, uh, the presentation, um, the film uses the poem it includes to place emphasis on the position of the poetry in the lives of the characters it depicts, sometimes in ways that are at odds with the reality of their relationship to the lives of the characters, and often to the exclusion of other important interpretive frames, such as the position of the poem in the career of the poet, or indeed other elements of Keats's poetic aspirations. In conversation with the film, the poems are shaped anew with altered emphases and sometimes new invented significances. Now, in truth, these conversations could be represented in a far more detailed and thoroughly confusing manner. Now, I know I've broken all the rules in terms of presenting um, a, a visual text here in order to give you a sense of the very complicated relations amongst texts and the various other elements that we might identify as being in conversation with them. We do not just have the authors and the texts in conversation with each other, but those conversations are mediated by publishers, film production companies, cast and crew, other kinds of poems or films, other people who, who are depicted in the films and who are friends with the, the writers that we're talking about, relationships to other writers of the same kinds of texts. All of these different um, ideas are potential avenues for discussing the conversations that exist. Now, of course, in the time we have today and for the purposes of your own HSC exams, we're not going to focus on all of these conversations. But I think it's useful to have in the back of your minds the selective focus of our chosen mode of study. We are, after all, ourselves in conversation with the educational systems that frame our present engagement with the text and with each other. To understand, perhaps, that there are many rich veins of influence and conversation to uncover, to write about or to gain a view of in the course of your study of these wonderful texts. In the time that follows, I'm going to focus on two particular conversational elements. First of all, I want to focus on how the film and poems can be used to engage with ideas about the presentation of Keats's life and how that interaction serves as a frame for the interpretation of each text. And then secondly, how the film uses poems, incorporates them into the discourse of the film, and to discuss both the advantages of that and the limitations in terms of interpreting the text according to their types as poems. So in moving into the first point, it's useful to understand to begin with an understanding of the biopic, um, thinking briefly about how this film fits into that broader genre and into the more niche subgenre of films about writers and writing. Biopic, of course, is the filmic equivalent of the biography of a, of, a, of the biography, a cinematic representation of the life of a significant individual, where pictures and visual um, representations replace the written word. The visual medium presents a series of challenges to would-be biographers, which can be well accessed by thinking about the different materials that biographers assemble and include in the different medial spaces available to them. Conventionally, most written biographies do incorporate visual components, dust jacket illustrations, for example, 
with a collection of photographs, paintings, drawings or maps that cluster together in the middle of the text. However, the predominant mode of representation is scriptive, reconstructing the lived, breathed life in terms of words on the page. The mechanisms enabled in that mode for recording historical information make transition from archive to the final text relatively smooth. Journals, letters, diaries, newspaper reports and such written texts are not subjected to a medial shift and can be incorporated into the written text with relative ease through the process of direct quotation. Because of these affordances, the written biography has great powers of inclusivity that appear more restrictive in visual media, where the reading of books, letters and newspapers and so forth often appear artificial mechanisms in a medium that is frequently obsessed with literal notions of the real, but that are also necessarily interested in the need to be entertaining. Films are part of big business, of industry, and the films need to turn a profit, so they need to engage and entertain their audiences. The film's requirement to be entertaining is a driving force that underpins the film narrative's presentation, and it's no different for the makers of biopics. A biographer working in a visual medium has access to the same kinds of materials as the textual biographer for gaining information about their chosen subject. But if those elements are included directly in the presentation, they must that they are sit awkwardly, and so they have to be dealt with in more creative ways. Of course, it would be possible for a film to just film a page of poems or uh, and, and leave the, the, the audience to read it or film a letter or a historical document. Such presentation would be pretty dull and would run contrary to the prevailing conventions of filmic storytelling, which develops material so that they can be presented as a series of arresting visual spect um, spectacles. Um, visual biographers use dramatization in a very significant way, and dramatization becomes a governing principle with archival elements subsumed in various ways in the final text. In Campion's film, we can note several techniques that are employed to incorporate the materials selected to the visual medium. Characters can be used to speak to written texts, as in the various characters who recite Keats's poems, for instance, or in the way that Keats is given dialogue that has been lifted directly from letters. And as you can see on my next slide here, um, <coughs> we can note how part of Keats's class for Fanny, which is quoted at the top, echoes sentiments that he delivered in letters to a friend, Richard Woodhouse, on the one hand, and then another from a another part of the same lesson from an entirely different letter written many months earlier to his publisher, John Taylor. In this moment in the film, Campion is able to collapse time and alter the addressee of these sentiments in order to attempt to recreate the authenticity of Keats's speaking voice. <clears throat> Keats speaks these words to Fanny Braun, not to other friends or his publisher, 
and creates a fictional sense of the relationship between those characters and uses those texts to its own ends in developing characterization. The collapsing of time speaks to a further element that takes great significance in thinking about the processes of selection that go into the production of the visual biography. Because the written text has a fair degree of freedom in selecting length, some biographies can afford to run for several volumes, each of which might run up to several hundred pages. Written biographies tend to be able to cover the life in a great deal of depth, more than is possible for films, which tend to be restricted in terms of the amount of time people consume in a single sitting, up to two or two and a half hours at most. A filmic biography about so prominent a figure in the literary canon as Keats, therefore, is faced with a set of dilemmas in selection that bear substantive scrutiny as the choices forced upon the filmmakers drives the audience's ability to understand the nature of the representation of the life. For we must bear in mind at all times that although any kind of biography, textual or visual, uh, may aim to give definition to a life, they also must be representative. They select, arrange and alter. They can't give the full life such fullness of life is impossible to contain in textual form. <clears throat> so in attempting to understand what the film does with the figure of Keats, we need also to focus our attention on the choices that Campion May has made in representing Keats's life, exploring some of the de debates that have raged in the Academy about Keats over the nearly 200 years since his death. As Campion has related in several places, she was inspired to create her film about Keats in line with Andrew Motion's biography of John Keats that appeared through Faber and Faber in the UK in 1997. Motion began his career as an Oxford-trained academic, but became a more public intellectual serving in many different public roles, um, including the Poet Laureate of England between 1999 and 2009. Motion was asked to act as advisor on Campion's film and to an extent his vision of Keats, or at least of the poet's relationship with Fanny Braun, is crucial in determining the shape of Campion's final product. In composing his biography, Motion wanted to present a different kind of Keats to the one that had been presented in a number of earlier biographies. He set out to debunk the view of Keats as the withdrawn romantic looking to place him more clearly in relation to some of the major events of his time than others before him had done. Speaking to Ramona Caval in 1998 on the ABC radio program Books and Writing during his promotional tour of Australia, Motion sets out the parameters of his revision Keats in terms that I find useful when thinking about what Campion has done in her film. Motion says, like all important writers, Keats turns in the wind of history, showing new facets of his genius to each succeeding generation. The Keats that has been given to us is very finely figured, but generally speaking, held apart from the life of his times. The other great romantic poets are routinely placed in the context of the French Revolution, of the war against Napoleon, of the repressive Tory government, which was in power during the early years of the 19th century. But Keats is a charming voluptuary, gazing open-mouthed at beauty and truth, 
while others concentrate on the Bastille or Castle Ray. Clearly, there is a lot to value in the old readings of Keats, and equally clearly it would be ridiculous to turn him into a narrowly political writer. He spends too much energy trying to transcend time to make that seem sensible. All the same, Keats doesn't get his just desserts as a man or a writer unless we put him in his place and wonder how he reflects the pressures which fall upon him. Sometimes this means defining his political beliefs, the staunchly liberal views, which in the early part of his short life were relatively simple and idealistic, but which towards the end became much more intricate and refined. Sometimes it means appreciating the ways in which he was shaped unconsciously. Here then we have at least two different versions of Keats that can be set in competition with each other. On the one hand, there's the poetic idealist, whose work looks away from the real world into an ideal sphere of aesthetic purity. On the other, there's a more politically engaged figure who does respond to the controversial questions that dominated the real world of Regency England, for example, through his association with the so-called Cockney School of Poets, the Hampstead Heathens of Campion's film, who include amongst their numbers such figures as Joshua Reynolds, the young radical poet, not the famous painter, um, Lee Hunt, um, another very um, political biographer, and Percy Shelley, one of the most famous, the famously political of the Romantic poets. To a limited extent, Campion's film makes gestures towards motions revisioning of Keats on these grounds, introducing various strategies for breaking up or complicating his bearing of earnest poeticism, as well as making a small number of oblique references to militarism um, with the appearance of the militiamen in the um, dance scene at the beginning of the film, for instance. Aside from these ideas, however, Campion does privilege a relatively restrained Keats domesticated, we might suggest, who is bound by the circle of influence of Fanny Braun and her, and her family. This Keats is different from the voluptuary aesthetic, who is parodied to an extent by the figure of Charles Armitage Brown in the film. And Keats is connected with a personal domestic politics, restrained by the power structures of his lived experience of the world of his day and connections to society because of connections of family or money. Even if he's still not the vigorously political animal that might appear if one were to emphasize the figures of Hunt and Shelley, he still is a very different figure to the idealist romantic figure who is thoroughly withdrawn. In terms of framing the conversation between the film and the life, the choice to focus on the love story between Keats and Fanny and more importantly, to focus the narrative through the figure of Fanny rather than Keats, is the most interesting and radical aspect of the presentation, as it allows Campion to do a number of things in terms of shaping that wouldn't be possible if she were to focus um, solely upon Keats himself. Crucially, this choice helps to select the film's historical scope, um, allowing it to begin at the end of 1818 through until just after Keats's death in February 1821. Because Fanny didn't appear in Keats's life until those final couple of years, the film is saved from the awkward task of having to account for his very dramatic childhood, um, his difficult education, his, his um, prickly relationship as an apprentice uh, in a medical profession, as an apothecary, <clears throat> and also allows, us, allows her to avoid having to show Keats on his wanderings through Scotland or Winchester or Chichester and London. 
we see Fanny waiting for him rather than Keats doing the exploring. It also allows um, the, the poet to be presented in ways that avoids things that might make him a less powerful figure to the target audience. We don't, for instance, get much of a sense of his attention to other women, such as, um, as um, Jane Cox or Imogen Jones. Despite the fact that attention, at least to Jones, continued in the period covered by the film, and we'd be very hard-pressed to know, for instance, that The Eve of St Agnes was written at the request of Imogen Jones, um, and at least partially expresses Keats's complicated feeling about loving both Fanny and Imogen at the same time. Ironically, in selecting the, to present Keats through the lens of Fanny, he is perhaps less motions Keats than one who might anticipate that one might anticipate given motions involvement. And Keats is presented with a great deal of partiality. Um, he's framed by Fanny's admiration, and therefore many of his sympathetic traits are highlighted. And it is the less bombastic, less the bombastic poetic idealist than he was for many early biographers. We do also get a strong emphasis on the love affair between Braun and Keats, which has also held greater lore for interpreters over the years since his death. In choosing to focus on Braun, the film does allow an intense focus upon the period of, that is most productive in Keats's life in terms of the composition of poems. And it's the film's use of poems that I want to discuss for the remainder of the time we have together. Um, as such, uh, the adaptation of Fanny's perspective serves to limit the film's narrative focus. The selection of poems forms another crucial mechanism for framing the version of Keats that the film projects to its audience. The selection performs a function similar to a band's greatest hits album, presenting only the poems that Keats that have ensured Keats's fame to be passed on to posterity and ignoring other less successful or contentious poetic experiments. Even in regard to the selection of the so-called great poems, um, the selection is, of course, very limited. We see only one of the great odes, and then it's only presented in full over the sequence of the, poem, of the final credits. Um, so a further set of questions that you might hold in your mind as you watch this film is which poems are included? How are they presented? Uh, how are they, are they spoken by a character? Who speaks it? Is it Keats himself or somebody else? Are they presented as a voiceover? Are they related by characters in situation? And how do they fit into the film's project? To give a specific example, to think through some of these issues, I want to consider the use of a particular poem, the sonnet, where I, when I have fears that I may cease to be. Um, considering, contrasting its use in the film with its function in the poet's life and considering how the difference in presentation might affect our interpretation or at least the interpretive strategies we bring to the poem. Um, the poem, of course, has a different agenda to the film and is quite different in the way that it reads if one takes it out of the context of its presentation in the film. So if we consider the context of the poem's production in real life, and in the film, we get some interesting ideas. As it's used in the film, this poem is used to act as an occasional piece that expresses Keats's attempt to deal with the death of his brother, Tom, and the attendant implications that event seemed to have regarding Keats's awareness of his own mortality. Although there's no direct suggestion that the poem is of the time at which it's presented, 
there are several cues that hint that it has special meaning. The timing of its presentation at the moment of the film where Keats seeks solace from Tom's death with the bronze during the Christmas of December 1818 carries an inferential weight that is suggestive of the connection between the poem and the event, a notion that's further supported by Keats's emotional breaking off from the recitation before he has completed its second quatrain. It might seem curious that the film can't even sustain a full 14-line poem in its discourse, but the omission opens space from within which to both view the manner in which the poem is used to serve a purpose within the structure of the film, to emphasise certain things about character and life, and also to begin to um, begin exploring other means for interpreting it. The fact is that this is one of the fact that this is one of the first times that we hear Keats recite one of his own poems adds weight to the suggestion of the clear connection between the poetry and the film's attempt to explain and represent the life, and is indicative further of the romanticized Fanny's Keats that lies at the heart of the film, even if at expense to fidelity to known fact, one of Campion's about, uh, supposed um, aims in the film. For although, though the dates of composition of Keats's poems are often under dispute, this particular one can securely be dated to the beginning of 1818, nearly a full year earlier, at a time when Keats was far more preoccupied with the direction in which his poetic career was heading after he'd had a series of disagreements with one of his early poetic mentors, Lee Hunt. Indeed, the fragmentation of the poem in the film offers a highly limiting perspective from which to view the poem and is indicative of the limitations placed on all of the poems that the film includes. And, of course, the narrow selection of poems to include in the film is a further area that offers highly limiting views of Keats's body of work. It might surprise to, um, to learn that Keats did write a lot of more clearly occasional verse Things, poems with titles such as Written on the Day that Mr Lee Hunt Left Prison or On Receiving a Curious Shell and Copy of Verses from Some Ladies, as well as some ribald bawdy verses such as Give Me Women, Wine and Snuff, which don't receive any attention in the film, most likely because they don't serve the kind of Keats that the film wishes to present. Indeed, at the roughly the same time that the sonnet was composed, first appearing in the same letter to um, Keats's friend Joshua Reynolds on the 31st of January, 1818, a poem entitled Oh Blush Not So, Oh Blush Not So, um, presents some idea of the kind of ribald verse that Keats sometimes worked with. Um, later critics such as Algernon Swinburne judged this poem as a bawdy song that was unfit for publication. Now, such a judgment may be an argument for excluding the, this kind of poem from scholarly considerations of thinking about establishing the importance of Keats to the canon of British literature, but makes them of potentially great interest to texts that attempt to present a rounded view of the characters, the man. And so we need to consider why Campion doesn't exploit them and what that means for the kind of Keats she's trying to present. If we look closely at when, fear, when I have fears that I may, may cease to be, we can see a great deal of potential for reading the poem in other ways that are illuminating for the figure that Keats casts in the Academy today and offers a means for breaking away from the limiting focus that is used to um, receive the poem in Campion's film. Even if we preserve a kind of biographical focus in tracing the poem's position in relation to his de uh, development as a poet, we can observe that the poet marks an important formal shift for Keats 
as it's the first sonnet written in the Shakespearean or English sonnet form, by contrast to all of his previous sonnets, and there were many, which had uniformly employed the Petrarchan system. Such a shift isn't merely interesting because it uses different rhyme and stanza patterns, but is crucial because it marks a profound shift in Keats's thinking about what poems might achieve in terms of um, rendering thought, and which feeds into his later experimentations of form in the great odes. Um, this, kind, this poem that he uses eschews the Petrarchan sonnet, which had previously been used in all of his sonnets, and instead adopts a Shakespearean formula. It develops the structure over three stanzas, each of which presents an opportunity to develop three different viewpoints. Um, such indeterminacy, uh, the, the final couplet draws together, but gives a conclusion that is irresolute with a further complication or problem that um, is not finally resolved. Such indeterminacy becomes highly interesting to Keats around this time, particularly because it finds accord with the principle of negative capability, um, which Keats first articulated in a letter to his brother earlier in the month, uh, in, the, in December 1817. Okay, I think that that's all I have time for.